You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. The regional championships are coming and Pioneer is back in a big way. But how do you get started in the format if you've been away for a time? Fear not, Faithless Brewers, because this episode has everything you need to get up to speed and crushing your next Pioneer event. It's our Pioneer State of the Format Guide. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show! Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson and I am joined by my guy on the left coast. The reunion continues. Damon Alexander. Damon, what's going on? Hey, hey. Not too much. Looking forward to learning a bit about Pioneer. Uh, I feel like we're all going to have to be prepared to play some of this a lot more often. Absolutely. Everybody is having to uh, step into my parlor here. I'm very excited. And we are, of course, joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Cave Dan Online. He is Dan the Man Schriever. Dr. Schriever, what's going on? Hey, doing great, David. Excited for this show. I'm excited to learn from you, the real pioneer guy. <laughs> the timing of this episode was fortuitous. I mean, we've been talking about doing something like this for a while. We did a mailbag episode a couple weeks back, and one of the most common questions we got was people giving some variation on the question of, if I've been out of the loop for a bit, how do I get back into modern? Or how do I get back into pioneer? How do I get started in these formats? Because the truth is, things change a lot. As much as you know, we're here week in, week out, giving you our takes on the latest tech, the freshest brews, the truth is that people are cycling in and out of these formats all the time. Now, that was all before we got this exciting announcement about the Pro Tour and the regional championships. Now it seems like there's a huge demand to learn Pioneer, so it's the perfect time. Take a step back, get the lay of the land, learn the ins and outs of the top tier of Pioneer. Absolutely. If you were listening three or four episodes ago, Dan and Mordekaiser went into a great deep dive in modern. We are going to try to do that here. So before we get into that, just a little show note. We are now going to be releasing on Friday and Monday. Hopefully you listen to our Friday show. We got a bunch of great uh Feedback from Damon on a modern 1K he played, on a modern, or excuse me, a legacy 1K that he won. Uh, we went through some sweet pioneer decks as we're uh, near the dying embers of Neon Dynasty. Today, like Dan says, it's all about pioneer. And just a reminder, if you would like to support us, the best way to do so is to go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Join at whatever level you feel comfortable. You get access to the Discord. You get access to all kinds of great Pioneer ideas. There are a bunch of great brewers in the Pioneer uh, Discord, especially always throwing out ideas. The metagame is reflecting a lot of their ideas two, three weeks later if you want to get ahead of the curve. Oh, what about this card? What about that card? All of a sudden, you see this card becomes, you know, borderline ubiquitous in the 5-0. So that's where those ideas, those aren't on the podcast. They're not coming from me all the time. There's a lot of great uh, minds in there. So highly recommend that. Today, Pioneer Time, we've got the format broken down a little bit into tiers. 
Um, and we want to make this, you know, very uh, easy as an entry level player. We're going to go through some of the cards. So people who are maybe very experienced with the format, they're going to know some of the stuff. We're going to go through all the stuff, the key cards to play around. I do notice it takes Pioneer players a long time to understand play patterns. I think people just play based on experience. I've seen a big shift already in playing around like Wandering Emperor, just as an example. Uh, they're just so used to playing a certain way. Uh, same thing with Greasefang. They're just letting me kill them with it. It's just like, no, you, ha you had outs there. You have to get used to some of these tips and tricks, the timing, and all these things are not obvious. So that, that's where we're going to start out. Yeah, so we've arranged these by tier, but take this tier list with a grain of salt. As David said, we're more interested here today in just explaining sort of how decks work at, at a high level, the 10,000 foot view. So we're just going to talk about what the deck does, what are the key cards and interactions to be aware of, and things to know when playing with or against the deck. But we're not going to talk so much about why a given deck is tier 1 or tier 1.5. That's more of like a snapshot of the present time. Yeah, and so these tiers are just my subjective analysis. So if you don't like them, you can don't yell at Dan or Damon. Uh, you can, you know, postmark a strongly worded letter to, to my editor. But yeah, just generally, here's how I'm thinking about them. Tier one, these are just generically the most powerful decks. So they're just doing the most powerful things. They do them relatively consistently. I think these are the decks that the pros will gravitate to as people uh, have ex are forced to care about Pioneer in some cases or are getting excited about Pioneer. Uh, and you're going to see a lot of these decks do well in uh, challenges. You're going to see, you know, large amounts of these decks in the top eights of, of competitive events. All right. Damon, you want to kick us off? Yeah. So number one on David's tier list is Blue White Control, a deck after my heart. Uh, I just love, you know, the peace and tranquility of blue and white cards. Answer everything they have. If you can't answer it, sweep it. This deck fits right into that mold in the most, uh, I would say, boring way possible out of all the blue-white <laughs> <laughs> decks across formats. Um, but it is very good at what it does. So the core of this deck has basically two objectives uh, and then a tertiary one. Counter everything they do with cards like Absorb, blue-blue-white, uh, counter a spell, you gain three life. Dovin's Veto, blue-white, can't be counter-target counter non-creature spell. Sensor, counter-target spell unless this controller pays one. Dwar Disruption, same thing. The difference being one of them cycles on Sensor. One of them is a modal dual face card that has Dwari Runes, a tapped island uh, effect land on the back. Then the things that get through counter spells have to fight through Portable Hole. This is one of the pillars of the format. Uh, you'll see it in tons of decks. Basically, every deck playing white is playing usually three or four of these. This is a one white for an artifact uh, on ETB, exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls uh, with mana value two or less until portable hole leaves the battlefield. So you'll see a lot of these decks play small creatures, some as a recursive, whether it be Cauldron Familiar or Witch's Oven, Elvish Mystic. There's just so many small things to kill. Portable hole does that job perfectly. Uh, then we have cards like Fateful Absence, which is this removal spell that isn't quite modern tier. One in a white, instant, destroy target creature, planeswalker, its controller investigates. And then, of course, the things that you can't kill with that card are March of Otherworldly Light. You can sweep with three Supreme Verdicts uh, or two Farewell. Farewell is this uh, kind of like the new austere command. Four white, white sorcery. Choose one or more. Exile all artifacts, all creatures, all enchantments, or all graveyards. So you can just choose all of them. And then that cleans up 
most board states uh, besides Planeswalkers. Then in turn, this deck plays, of course, a Planeswalker suite. Uh, the tertiary goal, of course, is to win the game. This happens sometimes extremely slowly, but powered by four Teferi Hero of Dominaria, uh, four Wandering Emperor, three Narset Parter of Veils. These cards you'll see are kind of multi-format staples, and so a card that's good enough to see a lot of play in you know Modern or even Legacy, these cards you play in, in Pioneer for sure. This deck can be built with either Urian or no Urian. Do you want to go a little bit leaner, uh, more consistent? We see your better cards. Or alternatively, have access to, you know, the Sky Noodle that we all uh, have seen more than enough of. The trade-offs, as usual, are, are not clear-cut. Uh, the decks that play Urian fill it up with, uh, you know, Omens of the Seas and Shark Typhoons, just kind of cards that cycle or, or have, uh, are, are worth flickering. So things to know when playing against blue-white. I think the distinction between styles of counter magic is very important, right? They have the four spike style counters and the hard counters, but the hard counters don't happen usually until three mana. Once things get to turn four, I think that's where the game gets a little bit sticky because then they have a bunch of possible things they could be doing. They're, they're probably going to pass a turn with four mana up. Is that because they're holding Wandering Emperor or is it because they're going to play Memory Deluge? Are they planning to cycle Shark Typhoon? Maybe all of the above. Or do they have a Supreme Verdict? Is that going to be their turn four? So I find that from turn four, five, six onward, the game gets very, very difficult against Blue-White. Yeah, so the thing that really turbocharged Blue-White to the top of the format is the all their new removal options. Uh, and Damon just listed them. It's not just Portable Hole. March of Otherworldly Light, Wandering Emperor, and Farewell, these were all recently added, right? And they uh, attack different uh, in different ways. Wandering Emperor especially, you know, this really changes the equation against Control Decks. You used to be able to just Thought Seize them a bunch. Wandering Emperor beats that kind of thing. You, you'll end the game a lot of times where you're just making a bunch of tutus and you used to just be able to do eight damage to yourself with Shocklands and Thought Seizes. And all of a sudden, Wandering Emperor is just attacking you with <laughs> two, two, two Vigilance uh, Samurai and you're having to play into their counter spells now because they're on the board. Um, that, that's made blue-white better than blue-black, which used to be the, uh, the way to go. The one important thing I would note is the Orion versions don't play Sensor. So don't play around it. They're, they're playing some number of Juari Disruptions. So if you have a creature on two, you just should go for it. The 60-card versions all play four sensors. Dovin's Veto is just going to get you, you know, whenever it's going to get you. So I, I think that's, that's a, that is an important distinction to note. I've not seen a single Urian uh, player play a single sensor. So um, you're going to have to get got by the two or three Jawari disruption. You, you have a lot of complaint equity, so that's worth doing. <laughs> yeah. One thing that you just have to accept as part of playing Pioneer is you are going to get a lot of your spells censored. There's really no way around it. You can't just like play off curve the whole game. Uh, if you give this deck an extra turn on all your spells, you're going to lose to their other cards. And you just have to accept that this deck, one of its strengths is that its weaknesses are that all their spells are kind of like weirdly modal or only situational against, you know, Dovin's Veto only counters non-creature. Sensor only is if they have, if they tap out for something. But you never know which parts of these cards are going to have. And so you can't really play around it. You kind of just have to commit and sometimes they'll just have the right mix to completely wreck you. Uh, and that, that's what makes this deck so good, coupled with the fact that the sideboard uh, is able to close whatever gaps it has against 
you know, decks that feature a lot of like graveyard recursion that Supreme Verdict would dodge. Uh, some of the modern removal it has now exiles already. So cards like Cauldron Familiar, that could already be like a pretty annoying card for this deck. It used to be the kind of these recursive threats, like even like Bloodsoaked Champion would be annoying here. But now you have so many exiling cards that the deck just fights through that no problem. All right, next deck up is Is It Phoenix? Is It Phoenix refers to blue-red spells deck with the titular card Arclight Phoenix, three and a red for a 3-2 flying haste, and when you cast your third instance or sorcery, or more specifically, at the beginning of combat, if you have cast three instant or sorcery spells that turn, you get to bring back all of your birds from the graveyard, and they get to attack right away. Is It Phoenix has existed in basically every format in Magic, in Pioneer, it's been a very, very strong top-tier deck ever since the printing of Consider. Consider, alongside Opt, gives you eight of these single blue cantrip effects. And from there, it's just a matter of filling out the deck with the appropriate removal spells in red and supplemental card draw in blue. The creatures will be creatures like Arclight Phoenix that pair with your spell effects. So Thing of the Ice was traditionally the go-to secondary threat that cleans up against aggro it comes in with four counters and then when you flip thing in the ice it transforms into the awoken horror a seven eight that bounces everything these days we're seeing that is it phoenix has a little bit more variation right some of these decks are not playing thing of the ice at all some are playing both some are actually playing a thing of the ice without even playing art light phoenix anymore so you can't be totally sure exactly what you're up against when you're facing is it phoenix but if they're leading on Spire Bluff Canal, there are a few things you can assume. A, at least, you know, 16 to 20 of their cards in their deck are going to be these blue cantrip effects. We call this a Turbo Xerox style of deck. So consider Opt, Chart of Course is very common. That's a sorcery, one in a blue, draw two, discard one. But if you've attacked that turn, you just get to draw two cards. Pieces of the Puzzle has become a very, very important card for this deck. That's two in a blue sorcery. Look at your top five cards. Up to two instances of sorceries from among those get to go to your hand, and the rest go to your graveyard. Uh, that means it puts Arclight Phoenix into the graveyard, it fills up the graveyard with at least four cards, and then the big payoff that makes these is it decks so powerful is the Delve mechanic. Treasure Cruise, Dig Through Time, and Temporal Trespass. These are the three cards we're talking about. I think Cruise and Dig need no introduction, but Temporal Trespass is 8 blue blue blue. Take an extra turn after this one, and it has Delve, so if you have a full graveyard, you can get a 3 mana time walk. Yeah, and that card itself didn't see a lot of play in this deck until the printing of Galvanic Iteration. That's a card that is blue and a red. When you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell. Uh, you may choose new targets. It also has flashback, 1 blue red. And so the first Temporal Trespass is kind of clunky, but if you ever get it off with a Galvanic Iteration, you borderline win the game on the spot. And the fact that this deck sees so many cards every game through all of the cantrips, uh, the expressive iterations, the treasure cruises, means that they can very reliably find even these two ofs that they usually play, like the Trespass and the Galvanic Iteration. Yeah, and then after board, basically, it morphs into a much more controlling deck that has a bunch of uh, counter magic or it morphs into a much more controlling deck that has a bunch of creature removal uh, sweepers uh, Dan I think you fa you famously won a PTQ 
with a very, again, like teched out version of this, same kind of style, right? You, you like the Xerox, like you say, the cantrip shell with the treasure cruises, but you didn't play any Phoenixes at all. Um, you instead play Crackling Drakes. So there's just a bunch of different ways to build this. You've seen it with Bone Crusher Giant, uh, sometimes with not. With Thing in the Ice, sometimes with not. Sometimes with Arclight Phoenix, sometimes just Crackling Drake uh, with the, um, the MDFC that lets you sacrifice a creature and do its power. Uh, you can copy that with a Galvanic Iteration, and Crackling Drake is going to be 12 power or something. Copying that spell kills them. So there's a bunch of different ways to build it. But to Dan's point, the main thing is there's a bunch of different instants. The graveyard is important because of the delve mechanic. Um, and the deck can win uh, both grindy games and it can win in sort of these like turbo combo-ish turns that it sets up on turn five or six. I find that the combination of blue-white control and is it Phoenix on the top of the metagame have done a wonderful job of completely suppressing creature decks in Pioneer. And some still exist if you go down further down to like tier two, tier 2.5. But like, is it Phoenix deck gets to play four Lightning Axe, that's one mana for five damage, four Fiery Impulse, it has Spell of Mastery, which you will almost always have, which means it's one red mana for three damage. They don't even have to play Anger of the Gods. Um, I, I used to play more of those when creatures were more common, but these days, uh, just having these eight one red mana removal effects that kill all the important creatures in Pioneer just gets you so far towards getting towards the mid and late game where you have the Delve and Recursive Phoenix engines. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what their intent was, but the Luris ban functionally banned uh, aggro in the entire format. So I think it's actually been quite bad for the format, and we will find out in the near future if it was catastrophic uh, for the format. But uh, I agree with you, Dan. The, their aggro is inc incredibly suppressed right now. But that being said, our next deck is a creature deck. So tell us about Naya Winota. Naya Winota is a deck built around the card Winota Joiner of Forces. This is a two, a red, and a white for a 4-4 human. The text very important. Whenever you attack with a non-human for each creature it triggers, and you look at the top six cards of your deck, you may put a human from among those into play tapped and attacking. Uh, this card has been used ever since its printing to basically do degenerate things. This deck is taking advantage of the mana elf package that exists. So both Elvish Mystic and Lanawar Elves are one green, one ones that tap for a green mana. They're also very, very importantly, not humans. Uh, Prosperous Innkeeper, another non-human that allows you to play Winota ahead of Curve because it puts a treasure into play. Um, the deck has a bunch of different variants on what it wants to play underneath. Uh, typically it's playing for Asika's Chariot, again, a source of a bunch of non-humans. Um, the humans it is looking to find are Tovalar's Huntmaster. That is a four green green for a six six human werewolf. When it comes into play, put two 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 wolves into play, and then it can it flips uh, under the day nighttime. If it flips, it becomes a seven seven. When it attacks, it creates two more wolves. So it sort of has like a grave titan like text. Uh, the other humans that you might want to hit, uh, Brutal Cathar is a very common one. Uh, again, it has that werewolf text. Uh, two and a white, it comes into play as a human werewolf. Exiles a creature uh, as long as it's in play. When it flips, it uh, becomes a 3-3 three, three first strike, non-human, very relevantly, uh, with ward three damage. 
this deck has been adopting Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Fable makes two non-human creatures. The draw two, excuse me, rummage two, so discard two, draw two, on its second Saga token, uh, helps you find Winota on your fourth turn. And it helps you win some non-Winota games if you can copy uh, creatures with the creature that Fable eventually makes. But basically what this deck is trying to do is just resolve Elf on turn two, resolve Prosperous Innkeeper on, excuse me, resolve Elf on turn one, Prosperous Innkeeper on turn two, Winota on turn three, attack, hopefully just hit your hunt, uh, hunt Master. Hunt Master makes two more non-humans. If they can't kill your Winota the next turn, you just kill them. So it can function as like a ramp aggro deck, but what it really is is that deck with basically a plan A of comboing you out. Winota finding, uh, you know, Agent of Treachery, Tovalar's Huntmaster, Kenrith the Return King, um, the red-white hybrid 2-3 that uh, gives all your creatures double strike when they're attacking. You know, some number of these cards uh, with a bunch of these, you know, random cards hanging out. And so every deck's removal is really being taxed because you have to be able to kill Winota at instant speed before they get to attack. That That is a major question that shapes all decisions uh, around removal for the format. Would you give this deck like a turn four goldfish, turn five goldfish? Like how long do you have? The problem is you have to play as if they have, if you don't have Thoughtseize. You have to play like they have it. So you can't really like, if they just play Prosperous Innkeeper on two, you kind of have to leave up removal for Winota for the rest of the game. Or you have to just say like, all right, this is the last time I'm tapping out after that. And I have to live with maybe them having Winota and getting lucky with their innkeeper if I don't have a sweeper. But yeah, if you don't do anything, they'll for sure kill you on, on turn five, 100% of the time. Um, and turn four is is highly likely. So is it like the first Winota attack kills you? Or is it the first Winota attack sets up the second, but if you untap into Supreme Verdict, you can survive? Yeah, that, and that's why blue-white is so good. They have an unconditional sweeper, right? Black has to play all these sweepers that get some of the creatures, or Anger of the God gets some of the creatures. Anger of the Gods does not kill Winota, right? Um, so that's why blue-white does so well. They even get to uh, sweep up the um, Asika's Chariot now with uh, <laughs> their new six-mana sweeper. Um, so, yeah, Winota puts a lot of pressure on the format because it is very low to the ground. It the threats that you want to answer Winota are very different than the threats in Phoenix and um, Blue-White Control. And it is very punishing, right? If you just miss that one turn, you stumble, it, it's, it's going to cr- present a board state that only a sweeper can can fix. So the presence of Naya Winota has an outsized effect on the kinds of removal spells people fill their main and sideboards with. We already talked about Lightning X and is it Phoenix deck, but you'll find a lot of the decks in Pioneer are playing weird, weird cards like Rending Volley or Red Cap Melee. These are both a single red mana. They can deal four damage to a white creature or a red creature. Um, so Rending Volley hits blue and white creatures. Red Cap Melee technically hits anything, but you have to sacrifice a land if you didn't point it at a red creature. Both of those cards are capable of taking down Winota as soon as it resolves, before they get to the combat step. Beyond that, I mean, Grafticker's Cage can stop the trigger, so can the card Weathered Runestone, although that card is a little bit clunky. It's a two-mana effect. It has the added benefit that it prevents artifacts from coming into the graveyard, so there's a Grease Fang deck lurking around the, the second tier of Pioneer. But in general, your, your best plan is just to 
sweep up the board if you can. Ray of Enfeeblement, another card. So the main lesson here, though, is you don't want to play any white creature threats because everyone already has these amazing sideboard cards. So, you know, you, you don't want to ever play, like, Archangel of Thune or something because people are not ready for you per se, but they have one mana cards that kill your creature. Um, so, yeah, Winota also just makes it punishing to play white creatures <laughs> of any kind. The, like, Collected Company Angels deck does not exist anymore because everyone has a one-mana answer to a bunch of different angels. Uh, their sidebar is just full of them because Winota, exactly like Dan says, really forces you to play cards that are very narrow, uh, but very powerful in, in those specific circumstances. And you have to build your deck with this in mind. You, you cannot race Winota unless you have some kind of combo deck. You have to be able to stop that Winota trigger. It's just, Winota's just so much more powerful than any random four mana spell you choose to ramp to. That being said, they don't play any tutors. At least most of the builds are not playing Eldritch Evolution. So should you warp your entire game plan around a four of in their deck that maybe they just don't have it? At a certain point, if you can't beat it, just play as if they don't have it. You know, it's not going to get any better for you. Yep. Yeah, there, there's just times when you just have to like tap out on turn three. Like, all right, this is a turn I'm not going to have many mana up, and hopefully next turn I will. Uh, but yeah, you because they, they can just play Chariot or whatever, and if you just didn't do anything, you'll lose those games too. All right, Damon, what's our next deck? Yeah, so next up we have Lotus Field. This deck has been around in various forms in Pioneer for a very long time. The core of this deck is to assemble an engine involving the card Lotus Field, which is uh, the hexproof land that ETB's tapped, on ETB, sacrifice two lands, tap, add three mana of any one color. That card alone is very powerful with the card pour over the pages as kind of like the, the key card for this archetype, I would say. Three blue, blue source where you draw three cards, untap up to two lands, then discard a card. And so in particular, if you're spending five mana to net draw two cards and untap two lotus fields, you're actually going up a mana. And that already is just like pretty insane. Uh, how do you get two Lotus Fields in play? Doesn't that require a lot of dirtling? Well, not as much as you'd think, thanks to the card for Thespian Stage, uh, which lets you get, once you have your first Lotus Field in play, you can pretty quickly copy it to have two. The deck also, of course, plays a lot of support to help find these and ramp into them in the form of four Sylvan Scrying and four Arboreal Grazer. Then to help assemble the mana even more, it plays uh, four hidden strings, which is this uh, one in a blue, you may untap or tap target permanent, and then you may tap or untap another target permanent. Typically, you're untapping two Lotus Fields. So now you have one in a blue to gain six mana, so you netted four mana. And so for reference, the card Cabal Ritual in Legacy is at its best one in a black for five black, netting you three mana. So these, these rituals, like when this deck gets going, it gets a lot of mana really quickly. Uh, it also plays Vizier of Tumbling Sands, which is two and a blue for a pretty pretty boring 1-3 tap on tap and on target permanent. Usually it, they use it for cycling, cycling one and a blue. Whenever you cycle it, you can untap target permanent. So now you have one and a blue to make three mana and draw a card. So basically, as soon as you have Lotus Field online, the deck's cards become you know better metamorphoses. Uh, kind of like metamorphosis when you have a Pyromancer Ascension in play or whatever, where they just you're drawing cards, you're making mana. What do you do with that mana? This has changed a lot over the course of the format. I don't think it really matters too much. <laughs> Usually they, they just win the game pretty deterministically. These days it's mostly an emergent ultimatum package. This is the uh, 
ultimatum that lets you search your deck for three monocolored cards with different names and exile them. The opponent has to face the choice of which one goes back in the library. You get to cast the other two without paying their mana costs. So a package could include uh, Behold the Beyond, which now lets you discard your hand, search your library for three cards. So you let them tutor even more. Uh, a card like Mastermind's Acquisition or Omniscience. Uh, they also have Fae of Wishes, which lets you go to your sideboard, whether that means that you know you need an Ugin to sweep the board in a hurry or a Thought Distortion to clear the way. There's just a lot of kind of ways that you can package these things. Yeah, it's extremely rare to survive an Emergent Ultimatum. I think I've done it once. But you're generally speaking, your best bet is to stop them from ever putting that card on the stack or you got to stop them from getting it that far because exactly like damon says once they've got seven or nine mana on their turn pretty much anything will kill you that being said if you pick up the challenger deck from your local game store that build will not have the emergent ultimatums it's a slightly older build using peter into the abyss and more copies of fey of wishes whereas the new versions play Lear, disciple of the drown they play dark petition which can tutor up anything and then add three black to your mana pool, which is exactly enough to cast Path of Peril, a sweeper that they play out of the sideboard. Yeah, this deck is very strong. Uh, it's possibly the best deck in the format. and It's possible we, we learn as pros start playing it that it's not even close. Uh, the deck requires a certain type of pilot who is good with these piles and doesn't mind the fact that every game is kind of going the exact same. It's similar broadly to, you know, Ad Nauseam Tendrils and Legacy, uh, but of course it, it's slower. It's also pretty reliable. It's hard to interact with Lotus Field. The deck is now powered with two Basadru who endures with the four Sylvan Scrying, so some of the best cards that we used to have, like Damping Sphere, are now kind of meh. Um, or at least they have a lot of answers to them. I would say the card like Narset, Parter of Veils, is quite strong. This deck really does typically need to draw cards to go off. Narset limits that. Deafening Silence. You can try to get a Necromentia or Unmoored Ego underneath the Lotus Field itself. It's pretty hard to do. Uh, I've, I've definitely tried. <laughs> yeah, as they've leaned into the Emergent Ultimatum, Necromentia effects have gotten a lot better. It used to be hard to figure out what you'd name. It's like, oh, am I going to name Fave Wishes? Well, they actually still had all their win conditions left in their deck. If you get the Emergent Ultimatum, you're actually okay. They they aren't that well suited to beat you, but you haven't won the game. They still have ways to win, right? The omniscience is still in their deck. They can tutor for it whenever they get the mana. They still have a one of Fae. That's right. Well, that's why they have these sort of one ofs as, as so that Necromentia is not a uh, game winning play. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the best way is to basically get underneath them uh, with creatures and at least a little bit, little bit of disruption. I'm not sure what this deck's turn is kind of left unchecked. I find turn four on their best draws, turn yeah. five on the average draw. That sounds about right. Yeah. It feels like turn five is the draw you should expect. You know, if they really nut draw you, Arboreal Grazer is part of their best draws, but it, they're also part of their clunky hands too, so. What you might not immediately realize is that they can kill you on the same turn that they activate Thespian Stage to copy Lotus Field. As long as they have enough mana left over to cast the Hidden Strings after that, that's all they need to just do all these 
astonishing rituals, gaining mana in chunks of four at a time. And the fact that Pour of the Pages draws three cards while adding mana is, is just insane. Yeah, and these these new lands are not thought usable and they're not counterable. So you really have to have a clock to uh, to put them under the gun a little bit because um, they're eventually going to find their Besaju if they still have to Sylvan Scry for it or or not. I mean, they're they're going to draw it. Yeah, post sideboard having like a single disruption piece will not get you very far unless you can kill them uh, around the turn five, turn six range. All right, so that's Lotus Field combo. The next deck up is a lot more fair. David, tell us about the Rakdos Sacrifice archetype. Rakdos Sacrifice. So this is a deck that's really focused on the Witch's Oven-Cauldron Familiar combo. Um, this was in Standard from Eldraine. This has been seen play in Historic. So Cauldron Familiar, one black for a 1-1 one, one cat when it comes into play. You gain a life, your opponent loses a life. You, if it's in your graveyard, you may sacrifice a food to put it back into play. Witch's Oven sacrifices a creature to make a food. All right, we've established our Splinter Twin situation. Every turn we can block with our Cauldron Familiar, so we get to stop whatever giant creature our opponent's attacking with. Another deck, by the way, that makes it hard for aggro. We return our cat into play, we gain a life. Another effect that makes it hard for aggro, and we do a damage. Um, this deck combines that with mayhem devil so every time you're doing this you're sacrificing the cat that does a damage from the mayhem devil mayhem devil is a three mana three three whenever a permanent is sacrificed it gets to do a damage anywhere you want so every time you loop through this you sacrifice the familiar to get a food and you sacrifice the food to get a familiar so you're doing two damage this supplements that with oni cult anvil oni cult anvil new card red black artifact whenever an artifact goes to the graveyard for the first time on your turn you make a 1-1 artifact. You may tap only called Anvil to sacrifice an artifact. Your opponent loses life, you gain a life. So now we're starting to see whenever the food is sacrificed on your turn to Cauldron Familiar, which is called Anvil, triggers, makes a 1-1. You can sack that 1-1 if it blocks on their turn. You do a damage to them, you gain a life. Mayhem Devil adds all these effects. We also play Meat Hook Massacre. This is the most expensive card in Standard. Uh, black, black, X. When it comes into play, all creatures get minus X, minus X. Whenever a creature of yours dies, your opponent loses a life. Whenever a creature of your opponent's dies, you gain a life. Well, you're sending all kinds of creatures to the graveyard. Cauldron Familiar. Uh, creatures that you might get from Oni called Anvil. That adds up. So all these loops are to do two, three, four damage chunks. And your opponent, you know, they only start with 20 life. So you don't have to do too many four damage chunks before your opponent is dead. The uh, rest of the list is just interaction. So this is sort of almost like the Jund of the format. It's a four Fatal Push, four Thoughtseize list. Um, Voldaren Epicure is a 1-1, one, one, so just a body to be sacrificed, thrown underneath the bus. It makes an artifact uh, in a blood that goes to the graveyard. Again, the blood sacrificing triggers your Mayhem Devil. Um, most decks, I think, that are playing this play some number of Experimental Synthesizer. This is a one uh, red mana artifact. When it comes into play, you exile the top card of your deck and you may play it until the end of turn. And then when it goes to the graveyard, same effect. You get to exile the top card of your deck. So Oni Call Anvil plus Experimental Synthesizer gives you a lot of card flow through your deck. Uh, yeah, the, the deck can be built a few different ways, but the basically this is the shell that's, that existed under Luris. 
and they've just added Mayhem Devil because it's it is so powerful. Uh, there's basically no no other change. Yeah, if you're familiar with the uh, food decks that were present in Standard coming out of Eldraine, there's also food decks in, in Pioneer. Although I think this deck is currently a little bit more popular. This deck has very similar play patterns. Experimental Synthesizer plus Unicult Anvil is kind of like building your own trail of crumbs. You also have the traditional Witches of and Cauldron Familiar loops, uh, which is, as we've seen, extremely powerful to the point where it got banned in uh, Historic, was it? Um, or Standard. And the funniest thing about this deck is that the cards in it are all so mediocre that decks that play a lot of one-for-one removal can actually kind of struggle against it. You don't really want to be pointing, you know, even like a Coligan's Command against a Voldarian Epicure. Like, it doesn't line up that well. Um, but the deck steadily tips away at the life total with the Calder Familiars, the Voldarian Epicures, the Mayhem Devil Pings. You know, one damage at a time, you know, one one, one at a time. It, it can vomit a, a pretty wide board with Oni Cult Anvils going off. And then it can play Meat Hook at Massacre to kill all their own board and then just dome the opponent for kind of a final volley. Yeah, this deck is a lot better than it looks. Um, you feel like you're doing okay. They're, the board isn't that full, but you're taking two or three damage in each of these iterations. They're not taking any damage at all. And yeah, like four turns later, you're dead, and, and you're dead in a way that you can't really interact with. Like killing their creatures just triggers another thing of some kind. Like sweepers aren't that great because the familiar dodges it. Um, yeah, uh, very, very good deck. And uh, like I said, this is about as close to a mid range deck as, as exists. Yeah. The main thing to keep aware of when you're playing against it is just that they play four Deadly Dispute, so they'll probably cast it whenever you point removal with their stuff. Yeah, and your life total just goes fast. It may not seem like you're under any pressure, but once you're down to about 10 or 12 life, you're actually in the danger zone already um, because they, they have probably some extra resources that they haven't spent yet. Because why throw it away? And it's not going to deal lethal damage. But that that combined with even a single Mayhem Devil or a single Oni Cult Anvil could just finish you off. And these are cards that are not that easy to interact with. Yeah, May- Mayhem Devil is the card. Like if you leave that in play for a couple turns, you are going to die. And, and luckily, that's the one that you can most profitably interact with. So typically, that's what happens, right? That that's a card that gets countered or gets targeted with removal. It's these other cards that are. Uh, <laughs> reoccurring and doing the chip damage and you're having to spend a lot of your resources to make sure that mayhem devil never stays on the board for extended period of time yeah i will say that in terms of if you're going to buy into a pioneer deck this is a deck that i would perhaps shy away from the value in it largely comes from the meat hook massacres which are very pricey not because of their wide applicability in a lot of pioneer decks but rather because of commander and for example like lotus field and Winota and Phoenix and Blue White. These decks have been around in Pioneer for a long time. The Sacrifice deck is very new. I think we have to see kind of how it stabilizes in the meta over time and, of course, over new printings. All right, next deck up, rounding out our top tier Jeskai Ascendancy. Jeskai Ascendancy is from Concept Arc here. Blue, red, white, enchantment. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn and untap those creatures. Also, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. So the first ability of Jeskai Ascendancy interacts extremely, extremely profitably with 
mana dorks, that is to say with creatures that can tap for mana. So you tap your creature to add mana, use that mana to cast non-creature spell, the Jeskai Tendency triggers, you will untap your creature so you, you have your mana available again, the creature is bigger, and you also got to do the second effect, which is draw a card, discard a card. So potentially you can just keep doing this over and over again as long as you keep finding cheap non-creature spells, ideally that cost a single mana, even a creature as innocuous as a Sylvan Karyatid, that is an O3 hexproof defender that taps for any color, just the combination of a Sylvan Karyatid and a Jeskai Ascendancy means that any single mana spell you have is essentially free and it gets you an extra loot off the second ability of Jeskai Ascendancy. So this deck is built around that combo. Your finishing move comes from the card Sylvan Awakening, two and a green sorcery, until your next turn, all lands you control become 2-2 two, two elemental creatures with reach, indestructible, and haste. They're still lands. So functionally, a Sylvan Awakening turns all of your lands into mana dorks, and now anytime you cast a spell, you get to untap all of your lands because they're all count as creatures, and then you just go off. You go off for the races, you have unlimited mana. Every time you cast something, all of your lands become even bigger because they're getting plus one plus one. You're adding a bunch of mana to your pool, you're looting towards your next spell. So the deck is basically entirely built around that. There's a lot of cantrips. There's considers, ops, expressive iterations. Some versions play Treasure Cruise. Some play Dig Through Time. So all these cards are there to fuel the Ascendancy, but they also dig for the Ascendancy. There's some amount of removal. It's normal to find a mix of Portable Hole and Chain to the Rocks. These are single white cards that can just kill a creature. Sometimes uh, red removal will be, will be in the mix as well. Cards like Flame Bless Bolt, that's Magma Spray, but it also hits Planeswalkers. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, this is a deck that looks like it shouldn't be good, but it is It is quite strong. Uh, Canister was playing it a lot recently. He got sixth uh, in a challenge on the, the 27th, so if you want to master this deck, I would recommend watching his VOD. You'll learn a lot from seeing him play it. Uh, the way this deck can kind of maneuver through hate pieces, uh, the way it can win on the spot, it has you know the ability to to fight uh, interaction and make sure it resolves its ascendancies. It has ways to find a second ascendancy if the first one gets thought seized or killed, uh, and then it usually wins the turn it goes off, just kind of on the spot. Yeah. So the ways to fight this deck are a cards that prevent them from casting more than one spell in a turn. They need to cast Sylvan Awakening, and then they need to cast another spell at least to untap all their lands. Uh, so if you have any of the effects that prevent that, that's good. Uh, one of the reasons why they play Portable Hole is it gets rid of the uh, white uh, one-mana enchantment that lets players only cast one spell. Um, and then they often sideboard Juke into Monastery Mentor, right? You should take out all your removal. All they have is Sylvan Carry added. You bring in all your Narsets or whatever to uh, punish their Jeskai Ascendancy. And they resolve a Monastery Mentor, cast a couple of Ops, and all of a sudden they've got a board that's very difficult to, to beat. And you probably don't have a Sweeper to uh, reset. So that's worth noting. Um, Narset is a great card against them. Some people have begun to play Dig Through Time because it's much better against Narset specifically. Uh, they do that even though it actually loses uh, the Gigantha, the typical Planeswalker that they reveal. So that's that's bleeding hot uh, tech. I think that the first time I saw that was at the over the challenge this weekend. But that, that's a really interesting idea because I'm a guy who loves Narset. I play it main deck a lot. 
I, I have a great record against this deck because of that, and this is a card that gets around Narset uh, very easily. Yeah, and, and post sideboard they're going to be coming at you with just probably a whole pile of you know mystical disputes, fries. The mentors can pressure a Narset. Yeah, don't be surprised if they juke you with Monastery Mentor. They also will often play the card Silence. So if you're on a deck that's just hoping to sit on counter magic to counter either the Ascendancy or the Awakening, they might just fire off a Silence and suddenly all of your best laid plans look foolish. <laughs> so generally speaking, the same is true for Lotus Field and Jeskai Ascendancy. Don't give them this much time. I mean, they're, they're too well-rounded. They're too good at finding answers to just be left unmolested. The onus is on you to end the game before they can combo off. Do you see much of these decks in the queues? Like the Lotus Field and Ascendancy decks? Or are these decks that are kind of more you see in challenges? Uh, I play against them quite frequently. Okay. Yeah, I find Lotus is extremely common in leagues and challenges. Ascendancy is a little bit on the downswing right now, but that could change at any moment. Yeah, I, I have not seen that much ascendancy lately, but I think that's because people are like playing mono red, which I don't actually think is very good. And uh, ascendancy is actually good against uh, most of the lists we just named. So, all right, so we're moving now into tier two. These are decks that, in some cases, have been around the format for a long time. At various times, have been at the top of the format, but are at this exact moment in time not as common as the tier one decks we just mentioned. Yeah, so our first one is a deck near and dear to us. This is Niv to Light. Uh, the current, I would say, champion of this deck in the Pioneer queues is Claudio. They have a ton of trophies. They streamed the deck. They made, uh, I think, multiple top eights and challenges this weekend. So I, I don't know if the VODs are accessible his, uh, at this point, but if you ever see them streaming it, you'll find a great player who plays the deck well and uh, very much knows how to tune it to the current meta. So this is kind of like a tap-out control deck. Uh, the core interaction here is the card niv Mizzet Reborn, which is Wooburg mana for a 6-6 dragon with flying. ETB reveal, reveal the top 10. You put one card from each guild into your hand that you find. So I've never seen it happen, but in theory you can draw 10 cards off this. <laughs> Typically it's more between you know 2 and 5. The interaction, I'm just going to claim Dan himself was the first person to really nail in uh, real magic, is with Bring to Light. Uh, three blue-green for a sorcery with Converge. You get to search your deck for a creature, instant, or sorcery with mana value less than or equal to the number of colors you use to cast it. Exile, uh, and then you could cast it. So in particular, Bring to Light serves as Niv copies, you know, four through seven or five through eight, depending on the numbers you're running, while also being able to help you find sideboard bullets. And so this deck features just like a whole suite of gilded cards, Powered by a Triumph-heavy mana base and Sylvan Carry added. The cards it features uh, in the guild slots are typically cards like, you know, Abrupt Decay, Dreadbore, Expressive Iteration, Growth Spiral, Vanishing Verse. Uh, some sweepers like Deafening Clarion, Extinction Event. Not gilded, but just strong enough uh, off-bring to light that they play it. Solar Blaze. Slaughter Games is a card that helps against the combo decks. And so... The deck between the main deck configuration and the sideboard can really go over the top of anything once you resolve your Niv. The question is, how do you kind of survive to that point? The mana is a lot worse than it was in the modern decks. Just all these triomes, uh, it, it's just a lot dirtlier. But Pioneer, of course, is a slower format. 
Yeah, so basically it's just a deck that's a pile of removal with a small handful of ways to win the game. And typically their first bring delight is either going to be for a sweeper, Niv-Mizzet, or Valky uh, on an open board um, playing the Planeswalker back half. This is the only deck in Tier 1 or 2 to play any Omnath and it plays a 1-of. So that's a very powerful card that does not see a lot of play. People are looking to do a little brewing, maybe. A little something new. Nobody's <laughs> playing Omnath right now. Uh, this this is a card that uh, is obviously very powerful. I don't need to explain how good Omnath is. So that's something that I would really recommend the people to tool around with is what's the best Omnath deck? Yeah, the one with running six and ten fetch lands. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. So five color Niv Mizzet is one of two decks in Pioneer that play a full out five color mana base. The other one requires a little more explanation, and that's the next and that's the deck we're going to talk about next, namely five color enigmatic incarnation. Real quick heuristic, Niv Mizzet usually is a sixty card deck. Enigmatic incarnation usually is an eighty card deck. They'll reveal Urian as their companion. Because they are playing a very, very impressive toolbox. This deck is designed to maximize the card Enigmatic Incarnation from Theros Beyond Death. It's two green-blue enchantment. At the beginning of your end step, you may sacrifice another enchantment. If you do, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to one plus the sacrificed enchantments converted mana cost. Put that creature onto the battlefield, then shuffle. So the turn you cast Enigmatic... You go to your end step, you feed one of your other random enchantments to it, you get to tutor directly into play any creature of one higher up the chain. So you're always feeding enchantments in, getting creatures out. As we know, toolbox decks, when they have access to a full 80 cards in Uriah, actually benefit tremendously from being able to have all these random one-ofs in the deck for any situation you can imagine. So there's too many cards here to even really name. Many of them are just useful cards that have the enchantment type line. So we talked about the card Chain to the Rocks already in the Jeskai Ascendancy deck. You'll find that here. You'll find Jukai Naturalist. This is a 2-2 enchantment creature with lifelink that ramps you to the enigmatic incarnation by reducing costs of your enchantments. Fires of Invention is the other big exciting enchantment this deck plays. Enigmatic Incarnation does its thing without requiring you to cast any spells. Um, so you can actually have some really impressive turns with Fires and Enigmatic going at the same time. And you can even feed a Fires of Invention to your Enigmatic Incarnation. So you'll even find that this deck will play a couple five mana creatures that it can tutor up by feeding a Fires to an Incarnation. So they might get a Scarab God, they might get a Kenrith Return King, they might get a Tulsimir. Um, but for the most part, you'll find that the key step in the chain is sacrifice a two-mana enchantment, like Omen of the Sea or Nylia's Presence, get a three-mana creature. Um, that can be a creature that removes something like Deputy of Detention or Skyclave Apparition. It could be a Renegade Rallier, just for value. Renegade Rallier comes in, immediately brings back the enchantment you sacrificed. Uh, or it could be a hate piece, like Archon of Ameria which prevents people from casting more than one spell a turn. Yeah, so this is just a very flexible toolbox deck. Uh, the card that is most interesting here is Trial of Ambition. All these Sylvan Caryatids, just people keep bad hands based off that card. Trial of Ambition comes in, they sack it, go to the next game. Uh, the Renegade Rallyer interaction Dan mentioned is pretty powerful, so you get the double sacrifice. 
The deck plays these Moonblessed Clerics to find its enigmatic incarnations reliably. You can also play this kind of awkward Fires Control deck with Urian uh, out of the sideboard to flicker all your kind of otherwise mediocre enchantments, even if you don't have enigmatic incarnation. So it's an interesting, flexible, powerful deck. Uh, it's it's a real kind of pioneer treat. You don't see these sort of decks in other formats. Yeah, this deck and Nimizzet are both very clunky, but if you don't have a lot of pressure on them, they are going to win, right? They're going to establish either their Niv BTL thing or their Enigmatic Incarnation Fires thing, and you're not going to be able to win because they're going to get uh, in, in the various chains that Dan and Damon have described three or four or five cards of value per turn, uh, you know, and, and on turn four, five, and six. And you're just, un unless you have some combo finish, there's just nothing you're going to be able to do. So those decks have very bad mana. They have to play a ton of Triomes, lots of Kona play tap lands. Um, they can do the wrong half of the deck thing, like a lot of your Iron decks have. That's the weakness of the deck. The strength of the deck is that your overall plan as you get into you know, turn five or six, if the board's relatively stable, you are uh, uh, an overwhelming favorite. All right, on to our next deck, which is another Fires deck. This deck is taking advantage again. Urian Fires, we know how that works, right? We, we put our Urian in our hand for three colorless mana. We cast it for free under our Fires. This deck is a Transmogrify deck. So Transmogrify, three in a red, it exiles a creature. You look through your library, you put the first creature you find into play. So this deck is playing a bunch of cards that generate creature tokens to target with our Transmogrify. They are Fable of the Mirror Breaker, Shark Typhoon, Birth of Melitus, and Asika's Chariot, and, then, and Wandering Emperor. And the only creature that we can hit is Agent of Treachery. So we can Agent of Treachery as early as turn four. Um, the card... Urian works very well with Agent, letting us get uh, more value out of our Agent, get a second uh, permanent. The rest of the deck is basically just a control deck. We're playing Chain of the Rocks, a very cheap removal spell. Um, we're playing Narset, Parter of Veils. It's great against all these combo decks. Also, all the parts of our combo are Narset targets. So the thing that generates our creature is a Narset target. The Transmogrify itself is a Narset target. Narset can be reset by Urian. Other than that, that's it. Because this deck is a fires deck, it's a control deck that does not play any instant speed removal. It has to play a lot of sweepers to try to compete with um, Winota because of that reason. So it's main decking, Anger of the Gods, um, various versions of it will main deck, some number of Anger and some number of Supreme Verdict. Yeah, there's not much more to say about it. I mean, in Transmogrify is, is a known um, effect, but it can win games without Transmogrify. I don't like keeping in a lot of removal uh, against uh, a deck like this, I'd much rather just uh, counter the Transmogrify because you, you'll lose games where you you hold up your push in case they Transmogrify and they re resolve their Seekers Chariot and then they resolve their Wandering Emperor and they won't resolve their Chandra and they definitely haven't Transmogrified and you're definitely way behind. Yeah. This deck was a real format powerhouse when they had Teferi Time Raveler. I I'm yes. not convinced it's very good anymore. It's not as good. That's why it's tier two. You can definitely tweak it out. The list that Dan has up here um, did okay in one of the challenges. It's only playing three sweepers, right? That's if you for, knew for sure you weren't going to play Winota, this deck could be tweaked out to be incredibly powerful in the metagame. But you don't get to guarantee <laughs> your opponent isn't playing Winota. Uh, that's a deck, that, a deck like this is always going to struggle with because Fires decks just don't have good instant speed answers to Winota. 
and Winota really asks a very specific question. Um, so that's a tension that exists uh, in the format. Yeah. Our next deck up is Mono Green Devotion. This refers to any number of decks that start with four Elvish Mystic, four Lanor Elves, and then a mix of green creatures and planeswalkers. They're often using the land Nykthos Shrine to Nyx, which you can activate by paying two and tapping it to choose a color, and then it adds that much mana equal to your devotion to that color. So you're looking at a bunch of cards that have a bunch of green pips in their casting costs for just truly explosive turns, making huge amounts of mana, but also doing it quickly because when you start with Elvish Mystic and Lanor Elves, yeah, you can just come out the gates as a traditional ramp, even without Nykthos. Versions of this deck have existed since the beginning of Pioneer, famously getting the card Leyline of Abundance banned in the initial round of Pioneer bannings. But the current version of Mono Green is actually a little bit different from some of the stuff that we're used to. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, the thing that stayed the same for a while now is it plays four Karn Grey Creator uh, and then some Vivian Arcbow Ranger. And these are both Planeswalkers that give you access to your sideboard. Uh, Vivian takes a turn cycle to get there. Karn gets there immediately. So this deck famously doesn't sideboard whatsoever. So if there's like one magic skill that holds you back from top tier uh, results and is sideboarding, this deck might be the one for you because there is literally no sideboarding. Um, but yeah, we've seen uh, kind of, I think, I'm not sure if these are flex slots or how committed they are. I don't track this list week over week, but you know, you, you see a lot of Cavalier of Thorns in here as a card that can kind of block against Phoenix while also steadily ramping you further, provides a healthy dose of devotion. Old Growth Troll, this green, green, green for a 4-4 Trample with a slight ability to kind of come back from the dead. You're seeing now, again, I guess from the Devotion, uh, kind of a lot of other cards like this. Uh, Cure Behemoth Beckoner, a card that we've been trying to make great for a long time. Uh, I think it's kind of come into play in this deck uh, in part because of cards like Old Growth Troll. It used to be not quite as reliably able to generate four fours versus kind of like planeswalker strategies. Uh, you also don't see as many of these voracious hydras as you used to. Yeah, I mean, the big change is they have started to incorporate Storm the Festival. And when you play Storm the Festival, um, Kiora becomes much more attractive because she's often coming into play with a card and her ability to come into play untap Nykthos that turn and then flashback Storm or cast her spell. Um, but yeah, the flex slots are really, do you want to play Vivian Arcball Ranger or not? Many decks are not playing her at all. Some decks are playing for Nyssa, who shakes the world. Some decks are not. Some decks are um, main decking Great Henge. Uh, I've seen that a lot. Um, some decks are playing Burning Tree Emissary or not. I saw Aspiring Spike, who's now uh, streaming some Pioneer, playing four. Many decks don't play any. The deck that Dan here has is playing two. Most decks don't main deck Elder Gargroth. This deck is maining two. The better versions, I think, are still playing some number of Hydra because it is your only removal spell <laughs> if you're not going to play Vivian. But yeah, the deck is super explosive. The the Nykthos uh, Storm of the Festival is basically just like a giant mana sink that also can draw like a bunch of cards is, is really uh, the way that it's been built recently and it, it's been having a lot of success. Yeah, Storm of the Festival certainly explains why they don't play uh, Voracious Hydra. All right, let's talk a little bit about spirits. There are two varieties of spirits, Bant and Mono Blue. 
Bant is the same Spiros deck that you can probably imagine from forever. It uses the Lord effects. That is to say, it uses Supreme Phantom and Empyrean Eagle. Green provides Collected Company, because a lot of these spirits cost three mana. And then you're looking at cards like Spell Queller, Skyclave Apparition, Rattle Chains, Mausoleum Wanderer, Selfless Spirit, and Shackle Geist. This deck just does a ton of damage in the air. It's a go-wide tribal deck that you can never block these cards. It's also very difficult to pick them off with removal because Rattle Chains can not only let you play at flash speed, but it can function as a counterspell, giving hexproof to any spirit whenever you cast it. And then, of course, Spell Queller for a true hard counter. So that's the traditional banned spirits. That's just sort of hanging around. But actually, the more common and successful version is Mono Blue. And this is one that maybe you haven't seen before if you haven't been playing Pioneer recently. Yeah, so I I want to give a shout out to the deck's player here, Hiro Tsukai. This person is the is is the only person playing this to great finishes. So it's common because this person, Hiro Tsukai, is unstoppable. They're top sixteening <laughs> uh, or top eighting uh, challenge after challenge. They are always the person who five O's uh, with this list. So. I don't know if this deck is good or not. Uh, I've played against this person and, and they've crushed me, <laughs> of course. Um, and they're putting up all the finishes. So uh, this is just like a classic format master. They've tweaked the numbers. Um, so they lose the power of Collected Company. They get to play Ascendant Spirit, a card we were excited about when it was spoiled. Uh, this is a card that you know sort of levels up with snow because it's mono blue. They're playing 22 Snowlands, three Faceless Haven, uh, 19 Snow Covered Island. They get to play Geistlight Snare, this is a two and a blue counterspell. It's reduced by one colorless mana if you control a spirit. We've got 27 spirits. Uh, excuse me, 25 spirits. Brazen Borrow, not a spirit. Or, and it's reduced by another one if you have an enchantment. So the nut draw is you play a one drop on one. You Curious Obsession it. You can protect it with your one mana mana leak, which is Geistlight Snare. And then you just tempo your opponent out. So the, the mono blue list is much more tempo based. There's... Uh, there are four lords, a supreme phantom, but you're skipping basically every other three mana play except for a couple brazen borrowers, and you're just looking to disrupt your opponent off. This basically plays like a uh, Delver list, um, so I would really recommend practicing this a lot uh, before you take it in any serious tournament. Uh, Hirotsukai is the person who's been putting up awesome finishes, and uh, whoever they are, they they've uh, tweaked the numbers. I don't know if you need to change those, but you want to get some reps in knowing when to, you know, go all in, when to counter, what to do. These decisions are very complicated. Yeah, you can tell that this person really has the list dialed in when they finished 10th in the Pioneer Super Qualifier and then ran back the same 75 to 3rd in the, the challenge on uh, on the th- April 3rd. And it has, you know, some mystifying card choices to, you know, like they have a cyborg Faceless Haven. I've never seen that in any yeah, deck I- ever. Yeah. But, you know, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure they bring it in in the right matchup and they crush, you know. <laughs> but you have to play this deck a lot to probably understand what what to do with that. But, you know, when you get rid of aggro, which we basically have, there's very little mono red at the top tables. A tempo deck is very good against control and combo, right? Uh, especially after Boar, you're talking about a deck that has four Geist Light Snare, two Spell Pierce, plus four Mystical Dispute, and maybe even four Lofty Denial. Uh, and then all these threats that are maybe drawing cards, you slap a Curious Obsession on one of your spirits and you just start getting in there. 
it's really hard for, you know, <laughs> Lotus Field or whatever to go off when I'm just doing four a turn and drawing a card, and then I've got all these one-mana counters, so. There's a card called Icon of Ancestry that Hiro Tsukai has played one copy in their main deck and two more copies on the sideboard. This is a three-mana artifact. I'm just going to read it because I'm not even sure I know what this does. As Icon of Ancestry enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Creatures you control of that type get plus one, plus one. So it's an anthem. Also has an activated ability, three and tap. Look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal a creature card of the chosen type from among them. Put it into your hand. So a permanent anthem that can also, at the cost of three mana, potentially draw a spirit every turn. I imagine this is the kind of matchup where you're, you're bringing in extra copies of Icon of Ancestry, you want that extra lands, so there's an extra faceless haven for that reason. But it just goes to show, like, A, how cool this deck is, and B, like, how much finessing there is to do, right? You think of the main deck as being, oh, it's just the cheapest possible threats and counter magic. But maybe in certain matchups, you need to go for, like, a more grindy plan, and you're looking at using icons to keep the gas flowing. You're looking at maybe entrancing melody to steal other creatures. It's a very, very cool deck, and it's actually the cheapest deck that we've talked about. It's $100 in paper, $100 online. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're the type of person that, that at all likes to sort of shell and likes to just kind of commit to a deck and learn the matchups, this is looking like a really good choice. I, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There you go. On to our next deck. So this is Rakdos Midrange. So this is similar to the red-black sacrifice list, but it's not playing any of the sacrifice cards. So it's not playing Devil. It's not playing uh, the food, the Oven Cat Package. It's not playing Deadly Dispute. This deck is basically just like a Jun version. So what it does is it plays four Blood Tithe Harvester. This is the red-black 3-2. When it comes into play, it makes a uh, Blood, and you may tap Sacrifice it to give a creature minus X, minus X, where X is twice the number of blood. It's playing the full, typically 12 three-drops that we think of in black-red mid-range in this format. Four Bone Crusher Giant, four Graveyard Trespasser, and then four Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Fable of the Mirror Breaker here, very important because that rummage lets you discard the half that you don't need of Fatal Push and Thoughtseize, right? Those cards are very good in some matchups, very bad in others. Um, and then normally they're playing some number of Kalidus, this deck is playing two, and they're playing some number of four-mana Planeswalkers. This deck is playing three Chandra, Torch of Defiance, one Sorin. Two Dreadboard, just so you can kill some bigger threats. That's the list. Typically playing 24 or 25 lands and getting a lot of value out of it. You know, they're always playing a Takanuma. They're playing some number of Castle Loctwains, some number of Den of the Bugbear, and some number of Hive of the Eye Tyrant. This is the most Jund-like deck of the format. It's just the best interaction on one, Two mana, you're playing Blood Tithe Harvester or Dreadbore. Three mana, I, I just listed those 12 cards, and then you're just playing, you know, a nice, powerful mid-range four drop. Um, that's it. That's all this deck is doing. Yeah, the main difference, of course, being it is not actually Jund. The Jund mana right. base doesn't quite get you there, but maybe it will in the future with the, the, new, uh, the new land. Yeah, it very well might. And speaking of that... We have a John Sacrifice list. So Damon mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the red-black list. There's kind of a handful of different ways to build this. Um, but it's it's still, again, taking advantage of a Cauldron Familiar Witch's Oven build, Mayhem Devil. But then it's using other cards that pay you off for sacrificing. So some lists are playing Corval the Fake Hurst. 
Some lists are playing Bolas' Citadel. Uh, some lists are playing Trail of Crumbs. Some lists are playing Collected Company. But they all function around Mayhem Devil being your primary threat. And then, you know, additional cards around it that, that work. You know, do you want to play Gilded Goose and Trail of Crumbs? Do you want to play, you know, Bolas' Citadel, uh, Collected Company, plus um, even like Priest of the Forgotten Gods? Do you want to play Woe Strider? These are all reasonable cards. I, I don't know that one way to build the deck is better than the other, but um, this deck is very powerful. Some versions even play Karn, right? They don't want to play Bolas of Citadel main. They just stick one on the sideboard and they, and they play four Karn. Uh, that's a little less popular now that there are very few artifacts decks uh, in the format, but um, this type of shell is the only like Jund mana base that currently exists, uh, and it's very engine-driven. The one thing to note about the Jun Sacrifice list is it's typically not playing as much interaction. It might play some Meat Hook Massacre, it might play Push. It's typically never playing Thoughtseize main. Um, so it's much better against aggro decks. It tends to not be as good against control decks or combo decks. Last but not least, we have Mono Red. In my experience, this is the most common deck in the leagues this week. Again, that will shift from week to week, but this is the deck that won the Pioneer Super Qualifier last week. It's very straightforward, it's cheap, it's fast, so this is always going to be popular. What does Mono Red look like in Pioneer? Well, it's got Monastery Swiftbeer and Soulscar Mage. No surprises there. For Eidolon of the Great Revel. But the new card that you might not have seen is Kumano Faces Kakazan. This is a saga from Neon Dynasty. It's a single red. Chapter 1, Kumano faces Kakazan, deals 1 damage to each opponent and each planeswalker they control, so a little ping. Chapter 2, when you cast your next creature spell this turn, that creature enters with an additional plus 1 plus 1 counter. And then on chapter 3, you exile the saga. It comes back as the etching of Kumano, which is 2-2 two, two haste, and... If a creature is dealt damage this turn by a source you control and it dies, it gets exiled instead. A little callback there to Kumano Master Yamabushi from the original Kamigawa. So now this deck is playing 12 good one-drops, whereas before, earlier versions used to play cards like Gitu Lava Runner. It turns out that Kumano just does more. Puts a lot of damage into play. The immediate ping allows you to play spectacle cards like Skewer the Critics and Light Up the Stage with regularity. You have Cheap Burn, Play with Fire, Wild Slash, some number of Spike Field Hazards, which function as either a land or a one damage spell, but they trigger prowess, so they're always useful. And then at the top of the curve, Bone Crusher Giant and Chandra Dressed to Kill. This is a three mana Chandra whose plus one can deal a damage to a player or planeswalker and add a mana in the process, or a different plus one can exile, your, can exile your top card, and if it's red, you can cast it this turn. The mana base is very clean. It's all red sources. Den of the Bugbear, Ramunep Ruins, and Mountains. Yeah, I mean, not, not that much to say about it. Uh, I do really want to encourage people to play Bone Crusher over Chain Whirler. I, I think every Chain Whirler in the main deck is just a wasted slot. It's not good against really anything. Um, if you're playing against a deck that's playing Mana Elf, you have to kill it on turn one anyway. There's not going to be a Mana Elf left, right? You're, you're, you're not, not shocking it or not killing it with your Bone Crusher. So really strongly recommend not playing Chain Whirler. Bone Crusher is a much better card. 
Uh, Bone Crusher also works a lot better with your Monastery Swift Spear, Soul Scar Mage um, package. So that, that's just the one note I would have. Um, really like uh, Rampaging Ferocidon out of the sideboard as an uh, anti-life gain tech in addition to Roiling Vortex. Formerly banned in standard, Rampaging Ferocidon. <laughs> yeah. The fun thing about the, these mono red decks is that in modern, you don't really tune them to the meta. Like your sideboard, maybe you have to figure out what you, you know, are you going as Cascade or, or whatever. With Pioneer, the removal spells aren't as good. So you have to figure out which ones you want. You know, for example, if you're going to play against a lot of the red, black anvil, you probably do want Chain Waller to get through the construct tokens. Um, but this balance of, you know, like play with fires versus wild slashes, you know, is a delicate one. You have to kind of, keep a read on the meta to figure out where you're going with these cards. All right. So that's about what? 15, 20 decks. These are the most common decks in pioneer right now. If you go beyond that, you will find like the occasional other archetype. You know, you might find a mono black deck or a demure control. There used to be a vampires deck running around. Grease Fang is an archetype that is actually fairly popular, but it's not super powerful. It's built around the combination of Grease Fang, Okiba Boss, and Perhelion, something that we've talked about in previous weeks on this podcast. It's a pretty sweet combo. And a minor human's resurgence, thanks to the new land Secluded Courtyard, which allows you to tap for any color on an untapped land. Pairing that with Unclaimed Territory allows you to play some formerly unthinkable five-color aggro decks even in Pioneer. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if anything else emerges. You know, we, I have played in the Pioneer queue with 130 people, 140 people. It was growing, right? It was over 200, it was over 300. I think, Dan, you said today there was over 700 people? 600 people? 775. Yeah, so I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, five times what it was when uh, it was just me and six other guys without uh, jobs or whatever. (laughs) Uh, playing in the queue. So it'll be interesting to see if any new decks emerge. You know, I'm really hoping that people kind of use this as a chance to flex their brew muscles, um, try a bunch of different things. You don't have to uh, play decks just like this. You do have to respect existing archetypes, right? You have to have an answer to Phoenix. You have to have thought about how you're going to interact with Winota. Um, But if you do that, if you kind of pay the uh, tax there, then there's a lot of things that still can be done. So the man is about to get better in the format with the new Trilands. Um, there's going to be a bunch of new gold cards. Are there? Are they going to be castable on time? So there, lots of uh, stuff left to explore in the format. Yeah, and the uh, the paper scene will continue to grow now that it is a format for the Pro Tour. So we expect to see. I think people get excited for that. I mean, I'm excited to compete. We have to see yet. Still, if my local stores are going to be supporting Pioneer for the PTQ or whatever they're called now. I think they can choose between modern, pioneer, and uh, sealed. But yeah, yeah, th- this is the best time to be learning pioneer. It's a fantastic format. Actually, always has been a fantastic format for at least the last year. And I think people are starting to realize that, and we encourage come one, come all. Now is the perfect time to dive in. We talk about pioneer every week here on Faithless Brewing, along with modern, and we have David, the foremost. Expert brewers always looking to push the metagame in interesting directions, forward, sometimes sideways, or perhaps backward. <laughs> Often backwards, yes. <laughs> Any final thoughts, David? Takeaways about the format that people should know? 
I'm a little concerned by how bad aggro is after the Luris ban. Um, and so I think the format is, unfortunately, as people are putting a lot of attention on it, not as good as it was, uh, unfortunately, a few months ago. I'm hoping some new ideas can uh, come from the hive mind that can kind of find some rebalance. I think the league play is actually a little not indicative of the power of the format. You talk about how mono red is super common. That is 100% true. You'll play mono red, especially if you're like in the 1-1 bracket, a lot. You might play it twice in a league. In high-level play, there will be very little mono red. Um, and so I think you can learn a lot of the wrong lessons about the format. If you just want to play leagues and have fun, which is what I do, there's nothing wrong with, with, with having a deck with a good mono red matchup and feeling like you're accomplishing something. If your goal is to be working towards a pro tour, you need to be very conscious of the fact that you aren't uh, letting all these mono red uh, decks in the leagues uh, influence some of your sideboarding decisions too much. Because when you play at the high level, there's going to be, you know, 2% mono red uh, in, in a very important event. So just something to be aware of. Aggro decks are, are borderline absent from all high level play in Pioneer right now. Yeah. The other thing is that Watsi has shown that they are fairly willing to ban things in Pioneer. And the price points of Pioneer on MPGO make the rental services extremely appealing. Uh, so you don't have to actually invest in a collection so much as you, you can just try out you know, lots of different decks. And if your you know, Inverter of Truth gets banned, n no problem. Just uh, return them to your <laughs> rental store. <laughs> well said. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for our Pioneer State of the Format format guide. So yeah, with that, I want to really encourage everybody to get out and play Pioneer. There, uh, there's 770 people uh, waiting to join you in the queues. Uh, we hope to see you out there. We're going to keep exploring Pioneer. We're excited to try new cards from New Capenna in uh, Pioneer. And uh, I wish everybody good luck with all their brewing. Yeah. May the Pioneer spirit be ever with you. <laughs> exactly. All right, take care, guys. Bye. See ya. Decklists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. If you enjoyed this show, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at FaithlessMTG, or leave us a friendly review in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or join our Patreon for access to our Discord channel, bonus content, and more. We'll be back on Friday for our Brewer's Guide to Streets of New Capenna. So until then, stay safe and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.